Uh, Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Obligacion is excused. And Trustee Slendorio. Here. I'll turn that volume up, but he's here. We do have a quorum. Okay. Um, and do we have any public comment? We do not. Okay, so we'll go on to uh, item A on the agenda. And, be and before we do that, let me just uh, let everybody know that item C7 on the agenda will not be brought up today. Uh, so you'll get, get out of school a little bit early. <laughs> Okay, uh, item A, an action item, approval of the minutes of last month's meeting, which was uh, March 1st. Um, any comments on the minutes, corrections? Okay, I had a few. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, one of them is, and I, I can't get into board advantage for some reason at the moment, but, I, um, if you could put a little introduction to the chair report item mm -hmm. and maybe just say uh, uh, that we asked the question, we threw out the question of are there, are the presentations and reports you are getting uh, meeting your needs for understanding at a governance level the financial performance of the organization? It's and it's financial condition, so you could advise the board on decisions it has to make. Okay, could you do that? That would be great. And then, um, Chair Banerjee's comment. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Was there a specific one you were referring to with that? Yeah, um, uh, it's just the, uh, I think it uh, says that what, con that what she's interested in is knowing what concerns the CFO uh, and, and the nuances behind the numbers and the risks and opportunities and strategies to mitigate risk. And I think it just doesn't quite read clearly. So if, if you could just make that correction, that would be great. And then in the section on the budget, um, shows item C3. Um, I think what I had asked was uh, when they when the budget is presented by administration in June, if they could uh, include in the presentation some comments on how the budget will impact patient access and services, things like uh, the frequency and lag time to get appointments and to get surgeries, hours the clinics are open, uh, status of improving equipment like imaging equipment and and patient throughput. Okay. Do you um uh do you want me to take these back and update them and then you approve them at the next meeting or are you okay doing it's up to you. 
Uh, whatever, uh, from a process perspective, if that is that, I know. They're pretty significant changes. Am I not? All right. Yeah. Then why don't you go ahead and do that? Okay. And we'll talk about it. Thank you. Apologies for the. Okay. Um, all right. Can I hear a motion to approve the minutes as so moved. amended? Wait, I thought we just agreed to approve the after we see them. Okay. All right. You're right. Okay. Sorry about that. Trustee Splendorio, we will uh, then postpone the approval of the minutes until the next meeting. Okay, we'll go on to the chair report. Um, we sent out three fairly short articles. Um, uh, the first one is about uh, uh, some legislation uh, that looks like it's going to be brought up in Congress um, for better support of the hospital industry. Um, and, you know, I think that We'll, we'll have to watch and see if it passes and, and, and these measures get into the federal budget. Um, but uh, at least we have what I think is some good support going on, at least in the Senate, for some things that we need to boost uh, staffing, both physician and nursing and other staffing, um, and try to address the safety issue for hospital employees. Um, any comment on this one from the... I have yes, one. And these three are so timely, uh, Chair Clark. So thank you for doing that. And as you uh, talk about razor-thin hospital mar margins becoming the new normal and the kind of costs that are going up, uh, we are just getting into the budget cycle. And the budget is really... Uh, a demonstration of our values as well. So I think just seeing where the resources go, how we do it, because we know the margins are uh, are very thin, and how we uh, are we putting patient centeredness into it. Are we resourcing the places where there is most need and places that have been divested probably during our lean times so much. So those are things that questions that I think we will be asking both in finance and in every uh, in the full board meeting too. So thank you for putting this. Also, also, it seems like uh, the article on hospital margins is uh, one comment they're making is that the uh, difficulties in, in expense increases. From, seem to be transitioning from labor to materials and supplies. And I, I don't know that we are at that point yet. So it seems like labor is still our most significant problem. So we'll have to watch that. But um, we are, our operations are finally returning to what you might call relatively normal after several years of abnormal uh, factors. You know, first we had the epic uh, conversion which obviously created a good deal of upheaval. And then obviously we had COVID. So now things are kind of settling down into what we might call a normal period. If there is a normal period for hospitals, right? <laughs> yeah, I appreciated the combination of articles because I think they, they all kind of lead to the same unfortunate conclusion, which is that our budgets have been impacted greatly by workforce and pipeline is a big issue and how we navigate recruitment and retention is also a big issue. Um, and 
I did appreciate that on the whole, they're referencing that people are spending less on registry, but uh, the just-in-time health system that this nation relies on is really, you know, that's what registering travel is all about. It's about filling in the gaps instead of holding on to higher staffing FTP markets. And I think just-in-time as it relates to supplies, which was really uh, all the vogue in American industry for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Has suddenly become uh, a riskier strategy, and, and people are looking, at least if not increasing their supply levels, to try to source them as close to home as they can get. Yeah. Yes. So well, that's part of the fun of management. You never know what challenge is going to come next, right? Any other qu comments or questions? I've got some comments. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you for putting. A, it's almost I've been trying to wonder. Trying to figure out what I want to raise some of the things I'm going to talk about, but your your article, uh, a couple of the articles that you put there really, I guess, give me an opening. Um, so I mean, I'll just give you maybe one more sharpened comment about you know federal government trying to pass legislation to you know to encourage people to go into certain fields. Uh, you know, most federal legislation, of course, is a, a blunt instrument and uh, trying to <clears throat> solve. A finite problem, and it, you know, in my opinion, it, it, it's good, it's great. Um, uh, you probably could just as easily increase immigration and encourage skilled nursing to come to this country, and would help fill uh, the gap we have. Because I mean, I, like I've said before, we have a demographic problem. We, um, you, you know, you have to encourage young people, presumably young people, to get into the field, and um, uh, in all fields uh, regarding medical services. And um, you just can't turn that ship that quickly, no matter uh, how sexy you may try to find, <laughs> make the field appear. appear. Um, you know, uh, students look at other things that uh, frankly are probably more uh, uh, financially rewarding uh, or uh, psychologically rewarding, to be honest with you. So, um, so I, which will lead me to my you know, a comment that I'm, I've been I've, I've been wanting to make and is um, why aren't we investing in a more productive um, technology? I mean, why aren't we looking at artificial intelligence? Why aren't we looking at automated um, uh, services that uh, can provide the same level of care, if not even better service of care, um, and expecting that somehow we're going to be able to hire our way out of uh, like I said, which I think is a demographic problem. Uh, and I don't think we'll ever be able to hire our way, at least not in the short term. Well, not even in the midterm, do I believe that. So anyway, that, that's my, my overall comment is um, I'd like to see um, our system look more heavily at um, using the technology that's available in this field um, than um, hoping that more people are attracted to the field. I'd like to add one more, um, and all of the all of the above, right? Like we need to create that pipeline. We need to, as an anchor institution, do. And as we are working on health equity, we find that we really want our uh, professional physicians, nurses, to be working at the top of their licensing. So there's that whole cadre of like the case managers, the, the kind of things that we need. Um, that you sometimes need to do primary care uh, 
the wraparound, only 20% of people's health are based on what happens in the hospital. 80% is outside the hospital. And what are we doing to keep people healthy? So all of the other things that now it's our obligation to be looking at patient social needs and things to keep them. So uh, those that's also resourcing for our budget and resource distribution. You, you actually made me think about something that I'm curious if we'll address hopefully in a future uh, meeting, because I know this agenda was created before it happened, but with the Affordable Care Act, preventative care measures being struck down, how does that impact us? How will that impact us? Uh, why uh, preventive care measures? Well, it's not completely annihilated, but it's on the path to annihilation because of what the justice in Texas did. Yeah, and I guess we don't know whether that will stand up or not. We yeah, hope not. We hope not, but you know. Well, I think um, uh, following up on Trustee Splendorio's uh, comment about technology that maybe either uh, when we have the budget presentation for fiscal 2024 or before, it would be, uh, I think it would be a good thing if we had an update on our technology plan, uh, which I don't think can't remember that we've done that uh, recently, at least not in the last year for sure. Uh, we, we, we did have a, a huge, uh, well, we were well behind in technology four or five years ago for sure, when we hadn't adopted the electronic health record. We've done that and that was a huge step uh, getting into, you know, 20 years into the 21st century we got there. But I think we'd all like to know what the technology plan is going forward for the next couple of years, if not three to five years. So uh, see Mr. Amy that you're on you're on the uh, on the call. So uh, maybe uh, either that can be part of the budget presentation or we can have a report uh, let's say in, in June, in May or, or July, coming up within a few months about where we plan to go with our hospital, with our system technology. Trustee Fox, I won't uh, uh, try to uh, answer all of that on this call, but I would very much, I would love the opportunity to come and address either the finance subcommittee or the uh, entire board, depending on uh, the decisions of the board and James, of course, on that. But um, I did immediately put up my hand when that uh, Trustee Splendoria mentioned about you know, AI and the investment in that. and. The good news is we're actually making active investments in that. You know, obviously you have to build the foundation systems and Trustee Fox, as you mentioned, we've been doing that, or I'm gonna say we have done that. You know, we have that. I would put that in our rear view mirror. We are beyond building foundation systems. We're into advanced systems at this point. And we actually have three AI models um, uh, with Epic turned on at this point. Don't ask me what they are off the top of my head because I don't remember, but they're all in the clinical space and I could get the, uh, I could get the answers to those uh, if you wanted. But we're, we're actively working to automate more when we can and where we can in the system to decrease the uh, you know, need for just increased human capital on an ongoing basis. And in fact, we're going to have one of our contracts coming forward this evening is for automation of our AP invoicing component, which is going to allow us to be much more efficient in that space. And we'll obviously talk about that when we get to the contract space. I know that's not in the clinical space, but we are actively working in the AI space and other spaces around that to try to extend our um, clinicians, both our physicians and nurses, 
nurse labor. Okay, thank you. And we'll look forward to a more extensive- So let me ask a follow-up question, if you don't mind, Alan. Sure. So directly to Mark, um, I'll give you a very surgical question. Are we required by law to provide human translators? Uh, I don't believe so uh, in that space, but I, I'm not an expert on that, but I don't believe so. Is there any effort to take to try to replace them with non-human translators? So the last time I looked at that technology, and you're getting a, um, a little bit technical on me, but I, I appreciate the question because I love this. But the last time I taught, looked at this, which was about a year ago, I didn't feel that the technology was at a place where it was robust enough to support that and the various nuance and, um, um, frankly, human interaction that was still there. It worked well in a very technical uh, sense, but not well when you started to get into human nature on it. And so I personal belief is we're three to four years out from that. But yes, I did. I did do, I'm going to be honest, a loose analysis on that um, a while back because I get, became curious about the opportunity. Okay. I'm glad to hear that you're looking at, I'm not trying to test. I just, I mean, so it's good enough to order pad thai in Bangkok, but probably not good enough to uh, help, uh, ex, you know, help explain a, a certain procedure to, to a patient. Exactly. I wouldn't want to talk about my heart palpitations uh, on it, but I could order um, uh, some uh, some food over in Bangkok. You're right. <laughs> so. Okay. Oh, yes. Christy Fox. I, I do want to say that uh, I would look forward to working with Mr. Amy on incorporating uh, this type of technology plan into the strategic plan and just want to let everyone know that I have had conversations with uh, senior staff about incorporating robotics um into our procedures and would look forward to i'm sure the sponsor would be look forward to discussing it with you during budget okay well, and can I actually make one last comment? And I think the trustees, you may recall this, but just to jog all of our memories, the um, IS um, capital plan is actually, and, and when I say IS capital plan, I, I hate to even call it that because it's really the organization's capital plan, but there's a lot of IS components, obviously, in that actually was incorporated into the overall strategic plan for the organization. And it's a five-year rolling plan. The first, that the, you know, the Immediate three years are usually pretty tightly tied together. And then the following two years are much looser in uh, what we have planned. And that's also an, uh, an area that we, we refresh it every year. In fact, we just got done with that refresh um, component of that. And then, you know, transparently, it is uh, predicated on having the funds within the organization to be able to fund it as well. And, you know, I think that there are probably a few things like the long-range IT plan that probably should be at least appended to the strategic plan uh, because it's it's just so critical to the future of the organization. And uh, even though it, it, it might fall within one of the five pillars, it still in itself is, is absolutely critical to our future. So um, we'll look forward to hearing more. Dr. Jonathan, down the road. I was gonna add that okay, we Dr. actually Jonathan. are using an AI platform in our digital retinal screening and ambulatory right now. We had a great presentation today by Holly Garcia in our quick um, meeting and um, actually asked her to bring that presentation before the board in one of our upcoming QPSCs so you can hear and, and see about how we're, we're using an AI platform um, really to, to reach a lot of patients. And we will be talking about uh, virtual uh, radiology contract later on in the meeting. And, and that's a, a, a longstanding example of 
hospitals using technology to supplant uh, uh, employees, in this case, radiologists, but uh, rather than have radiologists working 24 seven reading scans, uh, yeah. we, we're employing radiologists uh, that maybe probably are uh, on different continents and different time zones to try to get us uh, to get our scans read in a, in a timely way. So we can talk a little bit more about that and, and later. Fox, to that end, um, technology, again, we are moving toward um, rolling out more robustly point of um, care with ultrasound. So literally caregivers, whether you're a nurse or a physician, you, you connect a probe into your phone, do the ultrasound, it gives you a reading and a diagnosis immediately. And you can imagine the impact of that down the line with radiology the impact that's going to have on FPEs eventually in radiology. So another example. And, and Mark, just to add to that, um, uh, with the point of care ultrasound, a, a major initiative that was approved by the board um, was the um, enterprise imaging uh, solution that we are uh, in the process of uh, doing right now. And that's obviously a multi-million dollar project. We're in the evaluation vendor um, vendor evaluation stage of that. But one of the key tenets of that is actually the ability to plug in AI reading um, to that to help augment. And it's a becomes either a primary or a secondary read to the radiologist. So you still have human eyes on the image, but you also have a machine reading the image as well. And I think you know over, you know, over the next few years, obviously that'll become more and more machine read uh, with what we're doing. But that major consideration we have on that is the vendors that are well positioned to be able to ingest the uh, various AI um, feeds into their read. Okay, thank you for that comment. Uh, we're going to move on uh, to item B2, the Chief Financial Officer Report. Uh, and in Kim Miranda's absence, uh, Ann Metzger is going to review the February financial reports for us. Thank you very much. Welcome to the, welcome to the meeting. So, is my slide up? Good. I always worry about the screen sharing. Apparently, I gave a whole presentation and never shared <laughs> at a meeting recently. So I'm going to make that mistake again. So these are the um, February financials. And so um, this is our volume highlights. So we experienced higher volume across um, many areas, like patient days, 3.2% higher for the month, emergency visits, trauma cases, um, surgeries, both in and outpatient surgeries um, were positive. And our um, CMI was just a little bit higher than we expected, about 2%. So all of those positive factors have helped us produce a very positive bottom line. So this slide here, this little piece, I can't see the side. So this is the, um, the length of stay um, opportunity. So length of stay in February decreased. It had been running about 3.4 or 6.4 days and it dropped to six. So you'll see that our little green arrows moving down. So we had less lost opportunity this month, which is a good trend. And that's with a higher case mix index. With a higher case mix index. So. And that may be um, a factor of you know, COVID beginning to subside, so there are more options to discharge patients. And 
So hopefully it's a positive trend that's going to continue forward. Can I ask a question about this? Of course. It's a math issue. For me, I see uh, where it's budgeted 5.9 and the actual is 6. So like everywhere, it seems like, don't you think that, uh, that the length of stay we budgeted, it would be 5.9 days and then it's 6 days. So it seems inversely proportionate in my head. Like, do you... Uh, that I, I, I guess more than the budget, it seems like we are doing better, but and this, like, this indicator is the other, yes, oh, the other, okay, it's okay, the other way, okay, okay. A higher length of stay means you've incurred more cost that possibly are not reimbursed by the insurance plan, exactly. So, in the so higher length of stays is not, not the way to it's not as good, as right? So, then we are getting like red dots where it's higher length of stay and green. Where it's lower than right. budget? Yes. That's how it should work. Right. The budget is the allocation. We right, right. So we spend too much because people are right. Yeah, so variation should be like positive or negative? Oh, oh I see, I see. Got it. Variation yeah. is positive, but the trend should the trend be low. Positive, but we're still slightly over. Yes. So that's not good. And, you know, one month. It's a really positive start. It's one, the first step toward a more positive trend. Yeah. And if I may, just a, 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 something to look at in conjunction with that is the readmissions. Because we want to have a shorter length of stay. But if we have patients who are coming back in within 30 days, then that's a negative for the organization. So we kind of have to balance those two. So this is the same information for John George. Um, they went they went the other way, so their length of stay um, probably went up. We don't have that number on the stats, um, and so they had an increase this month. But you know, 838 is not, you know, kind of if you look at the trend, it's kind of in the middle. They've had a high of a thousand, a low of 678. So it looks like they kind of bounce up and down. All right, so here is the highlights on the financial statements. Um, we'll start with the net income and loss. So you'll see that both for the month and year to date, we are exceeding our budget. So for the month, we're about 10 million over and year to date, we're 6 million over. So, um, which is a, a big change from where we were um, last month when we presented. Our operating revenue um, continues to exceed budget and our operating expense is um, also exceeding budget. So it's a little confusing because you know, revenue you want to exceed budget, but expense you want it to be below budget. And so this is kind of a, a graph of where we anticipate we're going to be at the end of the year. So last month, the dotted line when you got to June of 23, was actually a little lower. It was below the blue line. So now we've revised our estimate and we expect to be at budget or maybe a little above, a little better than budget. If you guys have questions, just interrupt me. Okay, so as I said, gross patient revenue um, is running 7.2% over for the month and 6.6% year to date which reflects our increase in volumes. And then our collection percentage is 18.9%. There was um, a slight payer mix shift um, more toward commercial, which we often see when 
we have um, more trauma cases and more surgeries. So positive there. And then on a year to date, it's 18.6% and exceeding the budget year to date. Our major concern about our collection ratio and our length of stay together is that as accounts age out, are they going to be collectible? And so it, it's looking really positive and it's kind of become stable. Um, so we believe it will stay, but that is always a concern that we are reserving for. Um, one of the things I will say that um, came up in a meeting earlier that James and I were at, we were talking about AR with the county and this movement from where we were, where we had six to eight different patient accounting systems to all being collapsed under EPIC and having about three years of that you know, history has really improved the revenue cycle's ability to, to collect, to stay on top of things, um, for us to pull stats that are the same because previously every system, it was defined a little differently. And so I think we're finally beginning to see that fruit of our labor and having stability in this area. Yeah. And I think they say uh, you must have that for the first two years after Epic, it takes, it's like you actually see a dip yeah, before and, it gets better, right? So Yeah, and I didn't include that slide in this deck, but um, we have a slide where it shows um, two years ago for the audit, they, we were requested to take a significant create a reserve for AR because the cash was lagging with after the epic go live. And then you know, COVID it six months after that. So they were concerned we weren't going to collect it. So you had this big dip down in our net patient revenue. And then a year later, we have this big increase because we had to bring back in all those reserves. So three years, we had no um, net revenue audit adjustments at all. And it's just kind of now becoming more reliable. So um, the other item that um, was favorable was other governmental programs, um, 12 point, 12 million over the budget. So um, Measure A is continuing to perform um, over, over what our projection was. Um, we did put a growth factor in, but people are continuing to buy things. And so we have brought in about $16 million related to the first six months of our fiscal year, so July through December. So we true it up every quarter. So the first quarter, I don't know, it was probably about seven, and then this quarter it's 7.7 7 million that we've adjusted. So um, sometimes the spending will drop off in, you know, after the holidays, people get their bills and they stop spending. We didn't see that happen last year, so hopefully, you know, it will, maybe come down to our budget, but not go below our estimate. Do we expect that the, the, I mean, last year we still had money from the feds coming to people in terms of stimulus. Right, payments. and we don't have that, but I don't see the slowdown yet in the spending. So, and that's really when we did our budget, we anticipated there would be, you know, that lack of COVID stimulus money coming out. So really what we get in measure A is is really a reflection of the economy in the in the county, isn't yes. it? Yes, sales tax. Because isn't it also partly reflecting real estate activity and values? We get 
and sales tax. It's it also only sales tax, sales not, tax, not related to property tax. Right? We get or, a piece of um, the property tax related to the city of Alameda as part of our agreement with the district. But um, this, I believe, is a sale tax related. Alameda is a different bucket of money. Yeah. Right. So but parcel. that's based on their parcel, parcel tax. tax. Okay, yeah, it's a district. That's okay. the only one I know of. And of the measures, actually measure AA now, um, we receive 75% of that. And then 25% is diverted to a different group. Um, and then the other positive increase for February was for AB 915. Um, so we were a little conservative, so we brought in 4.2 million based on receiving the cash. And then on the year-to-date basis, the big change in supplementals is um, QIP for about 25 million, which is the continuation of the um, lower thresholds related to COVID. So we expected those thresholds to go back up again, but they continued the, that mitigation and so we um, had a favorable increase year-to-date. And QIP is valued as performance based. Yes, and so we have targets, and then it's what percentage you meet of the target. And uh, Chair Fox, Trustee Splendorio has his hand up. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, Trustee Splendorio? Yeah, I don't want to pick an old woman, but I do, I do want to point out that the measure A, yeah, it's only sales tax. Um, and it, you know, enough, it's a reflective of the purchasing power of the residents of of Alameda or others that come into Alameda County to buy uh, goods. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> um, and I'm not, I, I don't attest to this, but I do want to point out that we do a very poor job of explaining that while we take measure A funds from the entire county, we don't serve the entire county. And um, although indirectly, I believe we do, and I think that's part of the story, I know I think James and I, or maybe Mark and I have talked about that before. Um, and yeah, I, I think there is some <clears throat> maybe remorse on some areas of the county that feel they don't get their fair share back to them. Um, I mean, and that's a uh, that's a, something that plays very large in other issues with regarding the split of sales tax generated in Alameda County, but uh, on, other, on other uses. But I, I think I'm trying to make you all aware that we should do a better job of how we do serve um, the entire county um, so that others may feel that they do get a benefit from the sales tax that goes uh, through through uh, Measure A. Okay. Any right. comment on that? It's an ongoing uh, thing. And right. we, thank you for reminding us. Yes, our footprint is where it is, not across the county. So operating expense um, for the month were um, 8.5 million over and year to date 91.2 million over the budget. Um, we're gonna talk about the labor cost on the next couple of slides, but on this one, um, purchase services um, essentially at budget, you know, favorable 0.6 million. And then um, year to date, it's about 1.4 million over. Um, so the um, pickup, for the month was the Huron fees for less. We budget them evenly. And of course, you know, they don't come across evenly. So we had, um, we didn't pay any higher fees to them. And then we continue to have higher um, 
health information services um, for their translation, and then security is over. And then year to date is, is kind of the same things. Um, although Huron is at budget year to date. So COVID related activities, security. Um, materials and supplies, so unfavorable a million and year to date unfavorable 10.8 million. Um, and both the month and the year to date are driven by higher pharmaceutical costs, which are partly offset by revenue that we receive for our retail pharmacy. And um, medical supplies is running over. Do we expect that to decrease because of less COVID expenses? Um, I don't think I can answer that, answer that definitively. It, the COVID piece, the PPE piece is less. And we actually have a large inventory of that that we are trying to work through. And, um, but it seems to be more stable. We, we don't, you, know, you think about three years ago and we were paying outrageous prices to get supplies in and trying to share supplies with our counterparts, you know, UCSF, you know, helped us out. And so we're not seeing that stress and the prices have become more reasonable. So I think it's a slow movement down. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a variable expense and it's most dependent on the census and the number of patients that we see. Coupled with inflation right now, we're seeing a rise in the medical expenses. And But I think we're going to see it coming pretty much at budget. I think Late the state contributes too. What's that? Late the state contributes. You have more yeah. days. Yeah. People are patient days. Patient days. Yeah. You know, more more food, more pharmaceuticals, yeah. probably more tests. Yeah. Will we with the three forty adjustment FQHC for outpatient clinics and things? We'll have a slightly bigger reimbursement rate with that. No? Would that right. go into the pharmaceuticals? Because the cost that we pay for the drugs is less. And so, and the retail pharmacy is continuing to exceed their revenue budget. So it's, you know, unfortunately it's on two different lines. And so you don't see it clearly, but we do know that, you know, they're running more revenue than they have expense. All right, and then facilities. Um, is unfavorable and we expect that to continue for the whole year. At the end of last fiscal year, we implemented a new um, accounting pronouncement called GASB um, 87 that had to do with leases. And so we are now not reporting rent or lease expense, which was included in facilities when we did the budget. It's now where the leases are amortized over the life of the, life of the lease, kind of like a, sort of like an asset kind of a deal. Um, so you're just going to see a swap between facilities and depreciation for the most part. And there were some repairs done, which is also a little piece of the facility overage. So labor costs, um, you know, 7.7 .7 million, our largest, our largest item in the expense categories and also our largest variance. Um, so the labor cost, you know, if we think about it in terms of volume and uh, rate, so we have some increase due to volume, but we have a bigger increase due to rate. So we are paying more 
for these resources. And you especially see that in the higher registry utilization. So we, you know, we are paying higher rates. We had some problem with um, older invoices that weren't approved to process. So we, fourth floor labor and delivery OR worldwide. So this is an all clear metric for the code C. Acute care tower, fourth floor, labor and delivery, OR, worldwide. So we processed those through, which created uh, a little more pressure on the budget. But in February, we did see the amount of the variance come, or the total amount of the dollars spent come more in line with our run rate for the first part of the year. So we're thinking we're over that hurdle and now heading toward a decrease in that line. Now that I've said this, I probably changed it for, for March, but you know that that's that's what it looks like on the surface to me. Um, employee benefits um, are running over due to retirement. A lot of the retirement plans um, they allow um, the staff to contribute more at the beginning of the year and have it fully matched versus evenly throughout the year. So we have smart staff and they maximize it right away, and then our um, Sorry, our self-funded um, health expenditures have been running high. We have um, some um, patients that it, their amount of their claims exceeded our, um, well, fell into our stop-loss insurance plans. And so our expenses are higher now and we're slowly receiving re reimbursement back. So we have about a million left to collect on those claims. So that line, I think, is going to kind of calm down over the next couple of Is that a small number of claims that have hit the stop loss? Yes, it's always a small number. So it doesn't take very many. One digit number. Premature. Yeah, it was less than less than 20. So fairly small for this big of an organization. But we don't always see it until it becomes a trend because it's a little bit this month and the next month. Okay, so um, I think that's everything about employee benefits and retirement. So here's the FTE trends. Um, you'll see that in February, we um, dropped down from the January number. And February is a little more in line with what it's been historically, still higher, but closer to where it's been. And the balance, the key metrics on the balance sheet. So um, days cash on hand are consistent um, with where they've been. Um, the AR days um, gross and net have dropped a little bit. There's um, a slide later on that shows you kind of a graph of that. Um, and AP days are slowly coming down. We've had an increase in our AP invoices, which relates to higher expenditures. And then, as I said, those kind of older registry voices, invoices that came through kind of drew up our AP and so we're working it down. And the um, net position is uh, neg a negative 28.2 million and is lower or better, better than where it was in June. Yes, it's, that's kind of a, it's one of those strange numbers that go different than how you want to present it. So we're in a better position 
a lower, a less deficit. Um, and then the net negative balance is it's increasing. So at the end of June, we had a receivable of 50.8 million. And now we're back into a payable position of 21.1. And there's a graph later that I think it shows it more clearly than this table does. So here's the um, AR trending. The top graph is the hospital billings and the bottom graph is professional billings. So you can see that we're aiming back toward that low point that we had on January 1st. So head a little up and now we're heading back down again. Patient collections, I, I, to me, I, this is the most exciting slide, um, me personally. Um, so our collections are continuing really strong on our patient accounts. We're 12.6% over um, last year's collections. And then, you know, we're going to end up higher than we were probably two years ago. So I think this is like a really quantitative indicator of how well that revenue cycle team is working. So the line of credit. So um, if we look at the blue line, you can see how in um, February, you know, we're kind of climbing up. And then in April, it takes this big drop down. And the next slide will show you what causes that drop down. So as the supplemental plans moved from being a fiscal year timeline where they went from July to June, most of them have moved to a calendar year. And because they're at a calendar year, they're funding them earlier. So we're getting the money in April versus having it come in the fall or maybe in June. So we expect to see a big drop down and then we're gonna start this slow climb up because we're not gonna get as much supplemental money in these great big chunks. And we may even come very close to our threshold and in next year's budget cycle. Question about the great big chunks. So if the supplemental amounts in total are still the same, what's missing in the next year? Um, so it could be that they're not as much. And I did this kind of based on the run rate. Mm -hmm. And so we'll true it up again when we have the budget done. And then we'll see it. And then we might see it go down yeah. more, but offsetting the supplemental, the positive supplementals is the higher expense. So it's a combination of the two because to cover our payroll draws and our, you know, check runs, we had to, I estimate it's going to cost us more money based on the current record. And the only payment source is the net balance. Right. So, you know, we um, we kind of fund based on real time. So, you know, this week, tomorrow, I'll request the funding that I anticipate having for next week. And then we write the checks and wire the money. So that's why our day's cash on hand are so small. And so it's kind of how it's the crazy way that we do it, but it works really well. And so we know that as we start to climb up and we get close, we will start managing our, our money going out. So you may see our uh, AP days, we try to pay within 30 days. We may extend that to 45 or maybe even 60, I don't think we'll have to go to 60, but we'll you know, try to figure out where can we slow it down so that we stay compliant with our life. We haven't talked about the next budget 
budget. Yeah. Uh, no, not yet. Yeah, I'm, it makes me very curious about. I think maybe Grace will bring an update to the next meeting. Great. I mean, I, I would think we also have a like May meeting and then uh, May retreat. Yeah. I think the budget will be a part of that. So. I mean, okay. know, this graph makes it look scary. Yeah, it's well, not as scary as it looked about a year ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 we're playing. Yeah. And, you know, um, 40 million sounds like a really big number to us, you know, as individuals, but to this organization, 40 million is not that big of a number. So it could actually end up lower. But every year the energy keeps shrinking. <laughs> yeah. And we've been really fortunate to have it be a receivable because it typically has never been that way. Um, you know, I've been here about 13 years now. And there were months in June where we were going, are we going to be below that key number? And we would be below it like five million. So to be so far below is you just have to have that stewardship to say, I can't go out and you know buy the Lamborghini. Right? You got it might I need that money down the line for something else. So this last slide is the, the big things, big influx of cash that we're expecting. So you can see in April, it's $174 million that we expect. And then after that, it goes down to kind of, you know, 26, 116, somewhere down the line. So it just will take a while. It, will, it all works out. Promising to the ER level two ETA five minutes. Trauma team to the ER level to trauma ETA five minutes. All right, any other questions for Ms. Metzger? <laughs> Thank you very much. Good Thank report. You. Thank you. We're going to go on to uh, action items relating to the approval of contracts. And the first one is item C1, and that belongs to Dr. Torna Bennett. Yes, thank you. This is, uh, this is around our BRAD contract. So we have a long-term relationship with, um, with BRAD. They perform uh, essentially virtual radiology interpretations for us. And we typically, over the many years, um, the hours that they assist us are typically in those after, after our, you know, 5 p.m. To, to 8 a.m. However, we do have some open FTEs within Alameda Health Medical Group for radiologists, and our radiology volume, ordering volume, continues to climb. And so with that, we started engaging in conversations with the DRAD if they would be able to extend their hours to include some daytime coverage as well. Um, and indeed, and initially, given the, na the nationwide radiology shortage, they actually couldn't help us initially last year when we first approached them. But then they gained some uh, capacity and we and approached us again. Um, and we wanted to engage with them certainly in those hours. So um, in this contract, it's um, essentially completely offset by the professional fees that we retain in our and they would essentially be uh, providing us a volume of studies that's equivalent to about the two FTEs that we're down in the radiology department right now. Um, so once we get to that point of being able to hire backup, then we will um, not be 
study, as much study volume with BRAD. So will we be using them basically around the clock and not just for yes. off hours for yes. us? So we will still have our radiologists here, but they will be sending more of the studies during daytime hours as well. So we, the, the write-up says that the additional cost will not, there will not be any net additional cost That's because correct. They're going to turn over their profi collections to us. Yes. And that kind of uh, raised the question to me of, well, are, are, this is showing that it's actually profitable to read these scans because the profis is, mm -hmm. exceed the cost of the personnel. Is that also true with our own employed physicians? And do we know whether we're better off uh, using uh, the outside? radiologist versus our own? I have not done that analysis on, on the profit margin of our internal radiologist versus DRAD, but we can definitely look at so that. It's a little bit of a rhetorical question because yeah, I didn't but expect I would you expect, could answer that. I would, at, at one time, our registry costs less than that, and we relied on registry. when right. our, and, and, and you might, might remember that, or maybe uh, that when, to, uh, instead of hiring, when the margins were very low, so yeah. I had a question. Uh, when you say here, did you mean just Highland, or I know that we've oh, had uh, conversations with San Leandro and others yeah, as they kind of extend across the system? Okay. Yeah, this would cover radiology volume uh, uh, across <coughs> the system, and so here, meaning Alameda Health System. So, do we know when when? When the outside radiologists turn turn over their collections to us, when they bill, do they do they have their own contracts with these payers that they bill at those rates, or do they step into the shoes of our radiologists and get the same reimbursement that our folks would get if they read it? I don't know if their care contracts we bill on their behalf with our payers. Okay. Yeah. So, that is, okay. so they don't turn anything over to us. We just bill on their behalf. Okay. So we, pro we, we probably, we therefore should be more profitable with our own radiologists doing the reads. Presumably. Because uh, with VRAD, we have to pay them the margins. Okay. How does this impact recruitment? I, I don't think it'll, it, it's not gonna slow down our recruitment whatsoever. I mean, we're still in the market for hiring those internal Alameda Health Medical um, radiologists, so I don't think it has any any sort of impact. I think that we would essentially just use lower volume with VRAD once we start to once we get those FDs filled. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other questions for Dr. Tornabeni? Just a procedural question: Are we going to take a se uh, separate vote on each of these contracts? It's up to you, Chair Fox. Your discretion. If you'd like to wait. And if there are certain ones that the trustees have specific questions about, we can uh, talk about them separately and move to motion for those. Uh, so why don't we go through all of the discussion and then we may be able to do it with one roll call. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now we're going to talk about uh, the software contract with Highland Software uh, to renew our uh, data storage and integration. Mr. Shorten. And if I, if it's okay, uh, Trustee Fox, uh, let me um, uh, introduce Kevin real quick because I don't know that uh, all of you've uh, met him previously. 
Uh, so Kevin is our Vice President of Applications. Basically anything that is application related in our organization, Kevin has oversight for. He's been uh, with us for about three years. In fact, uh, I guess last week was your three-year uh, anniversary, Kevin, so congratulations on that. And uh, it has been instrumental in a lot of the work that we were talking about at the beginning of this uh, discussion around AI and automation to further you know, reduce our, our need for increasing, ever increasing our, work, uh, our workforce. And so uh, I thought it would be appropriate if Kevin came and talked with us about both this uh, uh, this um, uh, project, although it will be, I think, hand in hand with Anne, huh, who has been a, a big sponsor on this project, as well as uh, another project or another um, ask that we have up for the board around uh, consultant um, uh, dollars. So with that, Kevin, I'll turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Mark. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to come speak to this contract as well as uh, the other ask related to uh, consulting dollars and, and will ask Anne to help supplement uh, my comments and um, and information uh, since she is my uh, sponsor of the project. So with Highland, and I'll just give you some background. So we currently use Highland software as our enterprise content management and process management <coughs> software suite. Um, and we have tight integration with Epic. So we, we use that um, with the ability to capture outside documents as well as other uh, information from third-party systems uh, to be able to create that integration um, with Epic that provides uh, an embedded link uh, within Epic that can then launch into the uh, platform to display the information that the uh, clinician has requested. Um, with this project, what we want to do is extend on the OnBase or Highland platform to um, manage the AP processing uh, so right now, currently today, uh, we process about 8,700 invoices per month, which equates to over 100,000 invoices per year. Uh, there's an antiquated process of being able to scan those documents manually and store them in SharePoint, which then makes it difficult for anyone to access outside of the AP team. So what this product would offer is, again, similar to what it can do for Epic, is to be able to digest uh, incoming documents, be it electronically or uh, through high processing scanning, be able to convert those documents using optical character recognition um, to create the documents and then make them accessible um, through a link through our Lawson um, AP uh, platform. Uh, so, um, so what we're looking at the benefits of, of this integration will be improved workflow efficiency uh, through the integration and automation of the invoice input and routing of the invoices. Uh, what we're projecting, and these are just high level numbers, is going from roughly 14 invoices per day per FTE to about 36. Uh, these are just very rough numbers based on some formulas that we received from the vendor. Uh, improved visibility for invoices from receipt to payment increased number of invoices processed within a, a green upon time, because the turnaround time is key uh, in being able to meet uh, the vendor's uh, expectations. Um, and also there could be opportunity in the future regarding receiving discounts for early payment, but that's a further enhancement that we could leverage uh, later on. Uh, improve customer satisfaction, because now the challenges with having those invoices readily available 
it does take time to be able to request and get uh, the invoice back. This would all be automated and available through uh, Lawson as well as the um, uh, on-base uh, platform. So um, very high level, uh, we're, we're requesting approval for support to move this project forward. Um, the, the requested uh, projection is around $2 million for uh, the AP document imaging, but also to support the existing platform where we already have integration with Epic. So I will pause there. And if you wanted to add anything additional, uh, I'd be happy to uh, take any questions. Um, so I guess what I would say is that our AP system is like from 1990. And so we have, um, as a team, we've gone through the lean process and try to create efficiencies, but we have these duct tape solutions where we email the vendor to like to Trustee Fox, and then we hope he reads his email and he sends us back an okay to pay. And then when he gets to the budget cycle and he goes, I don't remember approving that invoice, then we have to go find the invoice electronically and email it back. So this would just bring us up to what the current standard is in the industry and allow our stakeholders to be able to actually see in real time, what are they approving? If trustee Fox is on vacation, if we could escalate it right up to James and say, could you approve this so we can get the vendor paid? Um, so what, wouldn't it be then be possible for a, an apartment head to rather than look at these Look at their invoices on an invoice by invoice basis and open your email and say oh i'm getting an right. invoice approved won't they now be able to go into the system and approve all their invoices that are right. pending at one one reading exactly because it would all be grouped there would be a work queue okay. by the various groups which is and the way i think the rest of the world does it <laughs> yeah when we, when we hi we've hired some new staff and when we explain to them how we do it, they're a little horrified because we are way behind in this process in particular. So um, the team is super excited about having this, you know, go up and go live in six minutes. So they would appreciate it. Yeah, and sorry. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, so I'm. I'm, I've used this technology in other organizations, and and this is to me kind of the first step um, in building the platform because the technology can take it to even line item matching on uh, POs that are generated uh, to help with the reconciling of the invoices coming in back to the actual POs that are generated. But that's a a future opportunity because uh, it was something that I've implemented in my last organization. So it is a very robust platform. Other questions, comments? All right, uh, we're gonna move on uh, to the group of five IT uh, contractors that we're gonna talk about, which is item C3. Okay, um, so, uh, with this uh, request, uh, so back in just a, a refresher, because I don't I don't recall who was here back in November of 2021. So at that time, we we brought up um, a similar request uh, related to increasing um, the uh, uh, spend for 
the vendors that we currently, consulting vendors that we, we currently use. Uh, at that time, uh, we had requested $2 million per vendor, and, and, and we had four vendors, so the total was $8 million. This is not a request for additional funding, but to help uh, increase the ceiling from a PO perspective uh, to help support um, or do a reset uh, for us to move forward. And so, um, so at this point, we're a couple of weeks out from hitting that 8 million limit. So we wanna do a reset um, based on the uh, current vendors that we are using. So it'll give us additional um, uh, runway uh, to reduce having to come back, say in 12 months to request another increase. So we're asking for a reset. So right now, just a little bit of um, a little more background. So the vendors that we've been uh, that we're currently using, they've been in place for over three years. We have been they've been doing a, an excellent job of providing us with uh, high quality qualified consultants uh, to help support uh, our vacancy rates as well as uh, when we need specialized skill set uh, for unique projects. And so. What we're, what we're doing, we leverage them for business as usual, maintenance uh, projects. And like I said, when we, when we need a unique skill set uh, that we don't currently have in-house and it's a short-term need. So um, the primary driver, as I mentioned, is our vacancy rate. And, and it's consistent. What we're experiencing at Alameda is no different than any other health system locally in the Bay Area, the state of California, as well as nationally. Uh, it is very difficult to find the resources um, in healthcare IT, um, but you, you can also say that for healthcare in general. So what we've been able to do is in, in the discussions and agreements that we have with our vendors, been able to negotiate rates and the rates will vary based on the individual or this type of skill set that we're pursuing. Uh, so we've been very competitive and part of our process when we submit the request, it does go to all five vendors. So they have the opportunity to find and submit uh, candidates. Um, and so we look at the quality of the candidate uh, and also their availability as well as the rate. Uh, and that rate um, we will negotiate if needed, if we feel that it is too high, but we, we do, the dollars that we use for our consultant is based on the vacancy uh, that we have, uh, the FTE vacancies that we have. And so we've been very cost neutral and we really focus on um, bringing in the high quality resource that we need to move our organization forward and been very successful with the five vendors that we've been using. Question on that. So does that mean that we don't, we don't really have a budget for this expense? The budget is in the personnel that we're short. Right? Correct. Correct. And this $10 million over what time period do we expect to spend this? So um, at this point, and I'll use my area for an example. So I, my team is the applications team. It's it, it, the, the roles are analysts. And so we have varying levels of analysts. Uh, around this time last year, I had 24 vacancies because of the, 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 the drive to lower that uh, vacancy rate, I think as of the end of this month into next month, month I will have five to eight vacancies. So I've been able to recruit leveraging the, the remote policy. 
because it, it, as you know, the Bay Area is very, very difficult. The state of California is very, very difficult uh, to compete, but been able to make great headway in hiring the knowledge and skill uh, to be able to help with these projects. And it's great to hear um, earlier regarding technology and how can we leverage technology even more. Um, so by being able to find the skill set uh, outside of the, the, the area has really helped us uh, to move our organization forward and also lower our costs. So based on projections, we're looking at roughly 20 to 24 months um, with that 10 million. But as I mentioned, our goal is to really drive down our vacancies. Um, and we think based on um, the using my area as an example, we can do that in other areas. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll, I'll pause there for any additional questions. So we've been, uh, if this is a refresh from a contract that's been in operation for three years, are the staff that you hired based on the people who actually came to work through the contracting? Well, it's a great question because we have been able, some of the consultants that we, we, we used, um, they really enjoyed working for our organization. And so we've been able to recruit them as full-time employees because um, they, they, they have a strong belief in our mission. Um, but we've been able to, to use um, HR uh, to be able to recruit additional uh, resources uh, outside of what we've been able to convert from consultants into full-time. Do you have a number on how many consultants we brought in and how many we hired? How many worked through the contract? How many we converted? My apologies. Well, yeah, how many converted and how many actually worked through the contract? So, um, so we had, I'll use 15 as a reference for number of consultants. Based on that number, we've been able to convert 33 to 40% of them into full-time roles. Is 15 the number? I'm sorry? Is 15 the actual number? 15 consultants? Yeah, my it's it can vary. It's 15 to 17, because I, I use the dollars from 24 vacancies um, to support about 15 to 17 consultants. So by being able to drive down our dependency on consultants, I'm able to get more capacity to work on projects and, and other work for the organization. And hey, uh, Kevin, if I could just jump in, uh, Trustee Esteen, we could get you an exact number on the entire department. I wanna say the entire department's number is probably closer to about 25. Um, Kevin's area has been the largest area, but we do use consultants routinely in our infrastructure space as well as our BI reporting space. And there's really three areas that we're using consultants regularly for. One of them is the staff AUG, and that's by far the largest, and that's what Kevin's been largely talking about. Uh, the second is we will periodically get a bolus of work that comes through a, you know, a specific project that we can't, we just simply can't have, we don't have the staffing, and it wouldn't make sense for us to be staffed uh, at those levels all the time. And so, the Trustee Fox, to your question about the dollar figure, that would then be covered in that particular budget. It would fund the consultants that we need in that particular budget. Um, and we have several people working in on specific projects that will then go away that are not staff AUG right at this moment. Um, the third area is, and this is more often in the consult in the infrastructure area, but occasionally in some of our other areas, is we have a very unique skill set. You know, we need somebody to do some very deep uh, um, configuration on a firewall or something like that. 
So we just, again, it doesn't make sense for us to have those skills on, uh, on uh, standby all the time because we don't use them that often. So we'll bring in a consultant uh, to help us with that type of uh, work as well. Yeah, um, thank you, Mark. And my apologies. Yeah, we roughly have 25 consultants across the IS department. And as Mark mentioned, Myara used to be the, the biggest consumer of consultants, but now based on uh, being able to convert consultants into FTEs as well as higher, uh, my number is significantly lower. So the idea is the plan to kind of use that same approach in other areas to, to, to do the hiring. Okay, any further questions for? Yeah, I have a question. Um, when you do consultants, is the process is a little different, I can see from this contract than going through an FTE committee, right? Like we, I know that <laughs> there are a lot more hurdles that let, uh, people have to jump through when you're trying to get an FTE and you hear that over and over again that together manager level position or something it is. Has there been and kind of, do you do an equity impact analysis when you're doing this? Because, you know, I've joked in the past and this is that the IT is, you know, uh, is staffed like one of our private hospitals, like a Mayo or something like that is, but we have like real scarcity in some of the other spaces where there is, you know, we don't have medical social workers, we don't have community health workers, we don't have patient navigators. So when we see one by one, each one seems really vital <coughs> and important to do. But as you all are sitting in the executive you know, ELT, like, do you, like, how does that, and, you know, how are you seeing that play out in the sense of, like, when we are you're backfilling some positions that you anticipate you might have, uh, you know, a vacancy, you might have something you need in the next two years. And then there are like real, real struggles here that are happening in the FT. So how, how, how are you reconciling that? Let me, um, let me jump in on that one. I, I think it's a great question. And it's probably a broader question than just our staffing, but I'll, I'll kind of focus more on that. But let me make maybe a broad comment. One of the things that we do regularly, and you know, Kevin's obviously involved in this as well as the entire IS leadership, is we benchmark ourselves against a number of benchmarks um, out in the industry to make sure that we're staffed appropriately. Probably one of the bigger ones that we use is actually a Epic uh, benchmark. Epic doesn't do the benchmark, but all their customers contribute into it. And um, then they normalize the data for us. And then we can get, the, if you contribute into it, you get the, your data back. And it really allows us to show or to see what uh, how we're staffed compared to other healthcare systems out there. And we can slice and dice this by safety net healthcare systems, community-based healthcare systems. Transparently, I exclude, I always look at it because I'm curious because you know my background from academics, but we exclude yeah. academic healthcare systems out of that. Yeah. Mark, I wanted to just interrupt, sorry. I meant, do you benchmark, you're benchmarking it with industry, are you doing how are you comparing it with resource distribution within AHS? Oh, I see. I see the question. You know, I sit on the budget committee. Um, and so we um, we obviously are talking about, in fact, we just got done uh, discussing capital distribution for the organization. And so we're looking at all of the uh, projects that we have going on there. Obviously, as we take on more projects, that has a direct impact on staffing. And uh, 
I, uh, I believe and hope that I'm viewed as a AHS leader, not an IS leader in that. So I've got to, I got to balance what we need in the IS department versus the needs of the rest of the organization. And so I work very closely to try to ensure that we're um, using what we need in order to provide the services and really help leverage um, the skills, but not using more than we need. One of the comments you made is, you know, are we staffing for anticipated needs in the future? And while we're always looking at what's in the future, we're not hiring people that we don't need in the moment. And that's frankly one of the reasons that we do use the consultants we do is if we've got a bolus of work that comes through that has a strong ROI, but we know that that's a short-term work, we will take on that work, we'll do that work, and then we'll let those consultants go. And uh, you know, the uh, I mentioned uh, earlier the enterprise imaging. We have several consultants working with us on that. They have very specific skill set in their area but uh, it wouldn't make sense for us to keep those people on once we're done with that project. You know, we use that same model when we did Epic, as you'll recall. We had a, a host of consultants in at that point with Epic, and we didn't keep all of those people, of course. I have a, a couple more questions. Is it is it correct that I hear that there's no real budget for the contract, but instead is being paid for by vacancies? Help I, me figure I think that out. I could help you out with that one, because um, that was the comment I was going to make. So yeah. when we have a vacancy, not only in IT, but across the organization, and we bring in a resource to work as an interim, we code that as registry on our financials, and it's part of our FTEs. We track the hours, and then that's part of what you know, could write. It's already included in the budget FTEs, so if Kevin brings in an interim manager, then it's offsetting kind of the deal. So this contract would be included in a contracting budget or in a registry budget? It's in the registry budget. It's in the registry budget. But if he brings somebody in to do a one-off project, yeah. not to fill a vacancy, yeah. then we code that under purchase services because then we're buying the service to do that project. So that it's not in registry. So they're going to take their dollars and they're going to budget some for projects, one-off projects. And then they're going to budget their FTEs, and we're going to agree as a um, budget oversight committee that IT needs, you know, 50 FTEs, and that's that's their target, and that's the budget they have for that. And this contract helps them fill through with registry, so it would be part of the registry budget. So two budgets: purchase services and then salary wages, which they either fill through people we hire. Mm -hmm. Or people that we bring into the registry. And the FTEs are related to those buckets, huh? Yes. How, where do the FTEs fall in there? Um, they're just added together. So the FTEs live not in purchase services. No, they live in salary and wages. Salary and wages, which is the same space that this contract. But when we report FTEs on our financials, it's a combination of people we pay and people we pay through the registry. Is that the same way it's done for other registry services? Like Yes. That's the exact same way. Right. So um, most of our registry comes through a uh, contract with uh, Visium. Is that their new name? Or VIA. So probably the bulk of it's through VIA. But we do have these other contracts that we track. And then we just include them in the registry line. So it's not like he's got an open, you know, checkbook to go and, you know, I know I had this much in the contract. There is accountability to manage to his budget. 
Yeah, I was very curious about how it shows up in when we talk about registry, typically we talk about nursing staffing. We don't Which necessarily is, include IT in that discussion. Yeah. But and that's probably the bulk of it right. is yes. more medical related. But if we needed to bring in an interim director of lab, right. we would code them to that. I guess what I'm trying to clarify is our salary savings on FTE is used to pay for contractors, and how do our union partners feel about that? Just I, a statement. I don't know. That's an interesting thought. Yeah. I'm sorry, Mrs. Don't be around, right? Well, my question was. <laughs> Are FTE salary savings being used to pay for contracting out, and how do our union partners feel about that? Or is it the other way around? Sometimes I think the IT contracts are much higher than if they would be FTEs. Well, that's why I was asking about how many they pay yeah. for. It sounded like yeah. 24 vacancies pay for 15 contractors, which is bad math. Like we were just talking about with the radiology. So, so I'm let, very more curious. Let me just, if, if I could just jump in on that. We would absolutely love love to never use another consultant or contractor to fill an open position. Yeah. That would be my dream. And Kevin has worked so hard on that the last year and a half. You know, obviously opening up our hiring practice so that we could hire in other states has made a huge difference in that. But the reality is just simply that we can't do it. And so we're, we're literally faced every day. And it's bad math. You're right. I hate it. Because it's like, Loosely, in my mind, I use two open positions, or excuse me, three open positions can fund two consultants. And I don't want that. I want to have all three people working there. So this is this is not like, gee, this is what I really want. This is what we do to survive. And honestly, every IS organization out there is doing that right now. That's not just us. But the question is, do you, when you have three openings in your pharmacy team, you just shut down the pharmacy system and don't have a pharmacy system, or do you hire two consultants? And the answer is obvious. We hire two consultants uh, in that, um, and we limp by because we're still one person short in the math on that. So we, you know, we, we very actively don't want to be using contractors to do staff on. I, I do want to use them where it's appropriate, so I don't, I don't hate consultants. There's times and places where they have a very specific skill set. Or we have that bolus of work where it doesn't make sense for us to be staffed up that way because we'd be laying people off down the road. If we if we if we staffed up for the project, we'd then have to lay off when we get to the next point. But to do it for just staff, you know, to do it for regular staff, we really don't want to be doing this. But we don't have a different option in this market, and we're not alone there. Every one of my colleagues out there in the industry is doing this right now. Yeah, just um. We hear you. Okay. We hear you. One one last. I, I would just say that, and this is something that, you know, Mr. Jackson and Fratsky are part of HERI, and we just, I think, two days ago, I sent a budget, like a, a budget uh, uh, values also have, like, um, so there, there is, like, an equity impact analysis tool that we use that just building that muscle to use it all the time, because it's not that maybe your decision won't change. But it gives you, it raises questions, it gives us deeper analysis of how we are distributing our resources, what might we be doing in ways. So just using that tool is important. And uh, there's a budget uh, equity impact analysis tool. Uh, I think our heady coaches have some, and I sent one uh, to them. Um, which came from Wisconsin on Milwaukee, which is an excellent tool. Again, just asking the right kind of questions. So again, uh, we know how you are system leaders and you're seeing this and using these tools just build our muscle to think. 
and surface other things that might come up. Good. All right, <laughs> Trustee Esteem, you have the last word. You've answered all my questions. <laughs> all right, are we ready to move on? Any, anything else? Okay. We're going to go to Wait, the Cardea. Kevin want to say something? He had his hand up. Kevin? Yeah, I just wanted to mention regarding uh, uh, Hetty, um, the, the vendors that we use, um, two out of the five have either are female or minority owned um, and uh, one small business. Uh, so we do really, when we look at our vendors, we, we do think about our mission, the vision uh, to make sure that these the companies that we're using do align with our values of the organization and where we want to take the organization from a strategic perspective. So I just wanted to note that. Thank you so much. That's so helpful to know. Great. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with all of you. Thank you very much. Okay, we're going to, we have two more to go. The first is the Cardea. Three more to go, trustee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, the linen one. Yeah, we have three more to go. I'm um, sorry. Um, because it is an aggressive slate tonight. Okay, right? let's go. And you're looking at Ira Holly and Ahmad here, and their contracting staff just did a fantastic job getting this ready. So I'm really pleased to talk about Cardia. You have all three of them, actually. I, I do. So I'll try to make them quick. <laughs> Um, on Zoom here is um, Alexis Shatir, who is the CEO of Cardia. Um, I also want to thank Jeanette um, for helping with this, but it's exciting. Um, I've always said we can make efficiencies with throughput just by becoming more efficient, but we're not going to get there unless we structurally change things. And, that, and I see that through a medically-based SNF, an OBS unit in this Cardia contract, which allows us to discharge our patients from either the acute care setting, our homeless patients, from the acute care setting or the ED um, into, into what, we, what I, I guess I would call is a medically-based shelter for the homeless, to give them the support they need um, to get back um, functioning well um, as best they can. Um, we calculated um, a reduction in expense off of our length of stay and we calculated a reduction of expense off of recidivism or um, you know, the coming back into the ED to the point where it's about break even. This is a one year pilot. Um, we expect it to be successful. We're going to build the structure in our ED to be able to manage this contract. Um, so we're really quite excited about it. We believe that it'll be about 360 patients a year that we'll be able to transition either out of our acute care setting or out of our ED into the shelter. We get reserved 20 hotel beds, if you will, that provides medically-based nurses, social services, and other support that um, these patients need, um, including housing assessments to get them back on their feet best we can. So it's a great opportunity for us to pilot and partner with Cardia to um, test something like this out. So with that, I'm going to pause, and if um, Alexis or Jeanette, if either of you have any comments you want to augment, I, I'd be pleased to. I, I do have a couple of comments that Cardia and Dr. Chitiar are extremely experienced in respite housing for medical patients. They ran the COVID hotels. They're running this day is and running the medical activities of, of Fairmont. 
tiny homes. So they have extreme experience in this field and highly can highly recommend it also from, uh, uh, I don't know, I can write her name. Yeah. From the county, the medical director of the county. Kathleen Flannan. Thank you, Dr. Flannan. I am excited to have them as part of our AHS family and, and, and know that as people exit, this is always a great concern for homeless advocates, as they exit our system, uh, Alexis and I have had these conversations along with the county. They will have a warm handoff to the individual's case managers, hopefully if they have one. If not, they'll work with BACs um, and other subcontractors to make sure that there is a warm handoff. And they also employ um, folks that have been either incarcerated or formerly homeless. So they walk the walk, they talk the talk. So I'm really excited to have this here. Question. Um, Write-up says that uh, a patient can be discharged or up to 30 days, I guess. Uh, or so it's 30, 30 days from, I believe it's the inpatient unit. Right, and seven and days, seven from, days the from the ED. If the patient is not ready for discharge at that point, can Cardea send them back here? That's a question for Dr. Chitir. Yeah. Um, so the expectation is that if a, if a patient has reached the conclusion of that proposed length of stay, so seven days after an ER visit or 30 days after an inpatient admission, that we would actually then work with the Highland team, the complex care team, or whomever it was that was most actively engaged with discharge, and think about what is the next right step for this individual. Um, are there shelter placements we can pursue? Might we want to extend for another day or two? That would be at the discretion of the Highland staff and our team. Um, we're really interested in looking for long-term stabilization to get individuals connected with the right resource at the right time. Um, we're a home health agency. We can provide continued support even after these folks have left this, um, the, the pilot site that we're referring to here. Um, so I think it would be a fairly individualized plan depending upon that person's level of need and our collaboration with the AHS team, um, really thinking about what the right solution is for that particular person in their care trajectory. So in other words, if that person does not require acute care right. uh, or emergency care at the 30-day point, uh, we expect that in most cases we won't Correct. get that patient back just because they're not ready to leave. That would be day. the hope for the patient, that they wouldn't have to come back. And that all that kind of thinking played into our recidivism decrease. And the other thing that I would add just from a system standpoint is that we have... Um, authorization from Alameda Alliance to add 30 beds of respite capacity at the same site. And so when individuals have a specific need for medical support, they would matriculate into the respite program. So that's our throughput, right? <laughs> to make sure that those 20 beds for HS discharges um, are available as promptly as they can be for the next folks who are needing that, um, that level of support. Well, I would ask that we schedule a uh, post uh, implementation review of this let's say in January. So we have a chance to look at the, um, the results before we have to decide on you know, the next year. The next year. And has a healthcare for homeless there, the co-applicant board, uh, the, 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 they have they had any, um, have they been able to like the healthcare for the homeless folks, do they know about this is coming? Oh, uh, 
Jeanette? Yes, Francis and everybody. I talked to Dr. Francis, he was aware of it. And Dr. Chichi and her team work yeah. with Healthcare for the Homeless on a regular basis. Thank you. Uh, are there, is there capacity for behavioral health needs or is this strictly for medical? We do exclude individuals coming out of John George. Our experience is that the site is not always a responsible discharge option for somebody who's had recent suicidality or has that level of behavioral health needs. Um, however, the population that we serve um, comes commonly uh, with pretty significant behavioral health challenges and we're really well equipped to manage that. So excluding that one acute components around suicidality or involuntary holds, um, we absolutely can ac accommodate referrals um, for behavioral health needs or for medical needs who also have significant behavioral health issues. Is this going into a site that currently exists? Um, That's yeah. in your, your inventory? Yeah, there are two hotels, both of, both of which were used for isolation and quarantine um, through the county funded program that we have provided medical directorship for the last few years. Um, so it would it will be located at one of those two sites. Great. And the 30 beds will be, they're the same location? Same location, yeah. Are we paying for every bed occupied or not? Or are we only paying for occupied beds? Paying for unoccupied and unoccupied. We believe we'll fill it. Oh, I know it. Besides, <laughs> <laughs> that's up for renegotiation if we were to look at renewal, but for just program sustainability, viability, wanting to ensure that we can really provide the service during this pilot period, um, that that's that's how we structured it. Have we, as a health system, utilized a discharge uh, concept like this before? Do we have an infrastructure for coordinating oversight? I don't think so. Well, I, I, go ahead. Just to say, so I, the Alameda Health Systems is very experienced in referring to isolation and quarantine. And if we're going to be candid, that has to some extent de facto served as a resource of, of this nature uh, for folks discharging both from the ED and inpatient setting. Um, so we have worked closely with the discharge planners across the AHS uh, sites. Um, and we'll be able to use the same system uh, for referral that we did there. It's low barrier. We have somebody there, transportation, an hour to collect your patient from the ED. So we do have experience with a very similar process and pattern um, and are really well connected with the network of the um, the folks who would be referring to us. Do we think that there's a need for ongoing follow-up on the AHS side? Um, that is something we'll need to discuss because um, Alexis has been really collaborative in terms of whatever we feel we could augment or offer them. Um, we're able to do that, including if we want to even staff it ourselves. We're but we're not doing that. No. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, those are options we can discuss. Any other questions or comments? Okay, Thank we're going you. to move on to uh, C5. Mission Linen. Which is a very controversial one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say it's a renewal. It's a three-year renewal of our, our, basically our existing linen contract. Um, Mission Linen has been a really good partner for us um, through COVID and um, come up with whatever we requested of them. So it's pretty straightforward. Okay. Any questions for Mark about Mission Linen? Okay. Okay. Lastly is a relocation of our executive team and foundation um, 
offices to a 55 Harrison lease space um, um, at Jack London Square in Oakland. And I'm gonna give a little history here. Um, we've got about a $4.4 million project we have started to move adult dentistry to Eastmont, long overdue. And you can see in the contract here, all of the issues that we're having with dentistry. And by the way, despite that, we've got a fantastic dentistry program. And Dr. Ng is on tonight and maybe she can talk a little bit about it as well. This is really a strategic contract for us in that part of dentistry, the uh, facial maxillary, the residency program, by the way, the residency program just scored zero, a perfect score on their first year of um, being a residency program. Congratulations. So it was, it was fantastic. So that's expanding. Um, and then that piece of the program is going to be moving to HCP3, where our executives currently sit. It's a great spot for dentistry. So we'll split dentistry off. And by way of doing that, take care of a ton of backlog. And the backlog numbers are here. By way of increasing, increasing our revenue approximately between the two programs by about $36 million. So there's a lot of work to do over the next um, two years. We're budgeting about a million to $2 million in the next year's budget to start working on the HCP3 uh, project. This um, contract is a four-year contract um, we got a really good deal on a four-year contract. <clears throat> Typically, you know, commercial leases are 10 years, um, but we timed it when the lease comes due at SSC. So we could look at how do we combine SSC and the Jack London Square space? Do we have an opportunity to find a place for all together? Um, maybe, maybe not, but we, we timed it in that uh, manner. We also did a space assessment internally to see if there were any options for foundation or ELT um, to, to be contiguous um, in their art. SSC um, from an office perspective, a private office perspective is at 93% occupancy. We do have opportunities to, into cube, to move some staff who don't need offices into cubicle space. And we're gonna to continue to work on that because we know we can still move people over to SSC. So we're looking forward to utilizing that space a little more. So this will allow Preston and the foundation whose lease has come due already. And they're on month to month through June, I believe. And Preston is also on. We'll move the foundation and about 10 to 12 members of ELT over to this 55 Harrison um, Street lease space. That's kind of it in a nutshell. And I would ask um, Dr. Ng if there's anything you want to mention about dental and your in your current space or Preston um, from a foundation perspective. Yeah, I have, I mean, I have a lot I can say about the current space on E2 at um, Highland. Um, I, we are very impacted, a service line. We're doing the best that we can with um, what we're given. Um, but just to give you an idea, we um, have one of the highest uh, referrals. We, we have that data in eConsult through Epic and we get hundreds of referrals from the community and an, our internal partners every month. Uh, and we are uh, backlogged with patients 
um, and booking months and months out. I actually just got word from the referral unit that, um, you know, they have told our referring partners that we we, not, we aren't taking new patients anymore just because the backlog is um, hundreds of patients long. And, um, you know, in addition to our, our recall list, our internal recall list for that we utilize for new patients trying to walk in because we get walk-ins every day. Um, people from the community in pain, um, that list is over a thousand. Um, so, you know, as well as the physical plant. Um, so the demand is quite high and we're at 150, 153% of our production. So we are working really hard to try to see these patients. Um, but besides the demand being really high for our service line, um, the physical plant just is really outdated. If, if you haven't had an opportunity to visit us in the E2 wing, um, I encourage you to do so. But it is an old building, a very old building. And, um, you know, the I can go on and on, but the, uh, the elevator is a major factor. It's not working. It's a very old elevator that the parts aren't even manufactured anymore to replace the broken parts of the elevator. So our patients who are in wheelchairs um, and, you know, travel long distances, the wayfinding to find the E2 wing is very difficult, which causes patient delays, patient appointment delays. Um, and they have to utilize a freight elevator with like a, a gate on it that is extremely outdated and difficult for our patients um, to utilize that elevator. So access to the clinic is very poor. Um, you know, the, the emergency power, there is none. We are sedating people for, if you've ever had your wisdom teeth out and had to be sedated for that, um, I don't know if you can imagine the power going out in the middle of a procedure like that. It's quite dangerous. Uh, we had to finish procedures with headlamps one time when the power went out. Um, and it's, it's quite scary. We had a family stuck in the elevator as well um, when it was working and well, not quite working, um, but now it's completely um, inoperable. Um, we can't control temperature and humidity in that wing. It gets quite hot in the summer times. We have to have these air movers and AC units in the hallways that block half the hallways. So I'm sure we're not compliant on many levels with that. Um, but this would be a great opportunity for us to, you know, get into a larger space to increase our capacity to address our backlogs um, and, you know, just to have an updated facility that meets the level of care that we're providing. We are the only um, service line in that old part of the building that um, is performing any procedural um proceed, you know, we're doing ambulatory surgery. So um, we're the only service line there. And um, also for sterile processing, uh, we do our own sterilization over in dental. I know that's always a hot topic when Joint Commission comes through, they always want to visit us. But um, that will be folded into SPD um, if we have the opportunity to move to HCP3. So I, I'm also, uh, any questions you might have, please. I have a question on the write-up. Um, you're, you're citing here additional dental services revenue of 30, almost $37 million. But what about the costs associated with providing those? Yeah. I, 
I don't imagine that the additional margin is 37 million. No. You're talking about the revenue, yeah. but aren't there additional variable costs of increasing our volume. Yeah, to there, there are, Trustee Fox. And what we've known um, for a long time, because the dental can only push so much volume through that their bottom line, their contribution margin has historically been negative. Um, the first year when we can increase the volume, it turns positive. And the third year, it's positive. And we carried out um, the same revenue through the performer. We didn't increase the revenue um, from year two, anywhere upwards. And we know that it probably is going to go up. So we're, we're seeing a positive bottom line for year two and year three after the front load of expense in year one. But I think you're overstating it if you're only recognizing the revenue and not the incremental revenue and not the incremental costs. Right. And so I, I just think it would be a more accurate to try to estimate the incremental costs and look at your you know, margin improvement, net of cost. Yeah, we've done that. I think, you know, this is the finance committee. We get a lot into numbers and dollars and cents and the community benefit. I mean, how many hundreds did you say we were backlogged right now? So many that we can't take new patients. That's a disservice to the community that absolutely needs to be Oh, I'm not arguing that. Yeah. I'm just saying that I think there's probably a gross overstatement of the financial benefit. The other question I have is, I guess you would say more political, um, which is you're, you're, uh, you're uh, relocating the corporate offices to downtown. And I can see this two ways, you know, and, and one way is, well, it might look to some part of the community that we're getting out of the old building and going into some really nice offices in downtown Oakland. And uh, what about the cost of that? How's that gonna be presented to the community and even to the Board of Supervisors in a way that doesn't reflect in a questionable way on senior administration? Not a finance committee issue per se, but I gotta bring it up. On the other hand, another we are a system and it's possible that members and uh, entities in the system other than this campus might look at it and say, good, they're too Highland centric over there and glad to see them on a neutral site. So, I mean, I, I would expect that this discussion would come up in the board meeting, but uh, just wondering sure, if I may, how, so how no, you're gonna approach this with the community. Point, points well taken. And certainly we've had those kind of internal dialogues and I would just offer that, um, one, the Highland centricity of having administration here, you're right, we've heard that for years and that's something we think will be addressed to some extent by getting out of the, the specific gravity of being at Highland and spending most of our time here. But there is a cost that goes with making this sort of a move. This is a very competitive lease. The rates that have been negotiated, I think are you know at perhaps a little bit below market because we found a motivated um, Lisa, who really wants to, to move this property. So it's a very competitive rate. And um, we did explore whether we could, you know, Mark mentioned the SSC, could we do this in a way that was basically cost neutral in space that we already own? And we really cannot based on our current occupancy. And there are other folks, frankly, that need to move as well. So I think there will likely be those kind of concerns raised. But um, given that it's a fair, better than fair market rate, and we will be getting into space that is more neutral from a system perspective, I think we can make a credible case. 
Any other thoughts by uh, members of the committee? Or I, I just wanted to say, Dr. Ng, thank you for the work that you all do. I mean, your team, the dental, just amazing and stuck where you are. This has been a long time conversation about this prime space being, you know, be, being allocated for patient care more than for administration because it, it has. So, I, it, so you anticipate like 24, sometime like to prep this space. Some, well, Eastmont will be done anytime between April and July of 24. And I would expect first or second quarter of 25 for this what space. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Um, do we have any more contracts? That, that can <laughs> <might> be <laughs> Would anybody like to propose a contract? We have eight minutes to go. Okay. Uh, Madam Clerk, could we have a roll call on these five or six oh contracts God. that we have? Six, I guess. We need a motion. Okay. Can we get a motion? Also move approval of all of them. So Splendoria moved in esteem seconded. <clears throat> All right, Trustee Esteen. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Aye. All the contracts have passed. Okay, that brings us to the end of our agenda. <coughs> Anything else for the good of the order? Before we <clears throat> You're early. We're early. You owe me seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> seven minutes that should be noted in the minutes. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a great evening. Passover yeah. wishes. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Passover wishes.